Well, the passage I've chosen to look at this morning may seem odd at first, even strange to some, but I want to invite you to take your Bibles, if you have a Bible, and turn it to Acts chapter 17, and we're going to look at what is known as Paul's famous sermon on Mars Hill. And we're going to be looking at Acts 17, verses 16 through 34. And as I read it uh, here at the beginning, hopefully you'll see why I picked this passage. Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is weaved throughout this entire account. Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you're very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live in all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he's appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. And so Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Father, we're so grateful to be here this morning to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the linchpin of 
our faith as Christians. And now as we observe this message that Paul preached to these unbelievers, I pray that we would go to school on his example, but Lord, we'd also not miss the personal nature of the resurrection, and that we would all leave here today understanding why the resurrection matters to us personally. Pray that you would be glorified now, exalt Christ, and may he draw people to himself. Pray this in his name. Amen. Well, one of the authors who has made the most profound impact on my life and, and thinking is a man by the name of J.I. Packer. The Lord took him home to be with him this last year. And my favorite book that he wrote is titled Knowing God. And in this classic book, Packer wrote the following. And I want you to listen carefully to what he said. Knowing about God is crucially important for the living of our lives. We are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing about the God whose world it is and who runs it. The world becomes a strange, mad, painful place and life in it a disappointing and unpleasant business for those who do not know about God. Disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded, as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This way, you can waste your life and lose your soul. I read that because I think that's an accurate description of a lot of people in our world today. They're ignorant about who God is and what he requires of them, and so they're stumbling and, and blundering through life, not knowing where they came from or where they're going. And so they grope along trying to find their way, and the only thing they have to guide them is their own ignorant ideas and opinions, or the, the, the ignorant ideas and opinions of a bunch of other blindfolded people. And what the world needs more than anything is a proper view of God. That's why I love that masterful statement that A.W. Tozer made in his book, Knowledge of the Holy. He said this, quote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. In other words, the most important thing about any person is their view of God. Every person who's ever lived and who ever will live lives their life based on their view of God. How you are living right now is a reflection of your view of God. And where you spend eternity is dependent on what you think about God. And so we can't afford to be ignorant about who God is. Now thankfully, God has not left us to our own ignorance, our own speculation, but he's provided us clear revelation in his word. And the reason why God wrote the Bible was to explain who he was so that we could know him, we could have a relationship with him. And there's lots of great passages throughout the Bible that talk about who God is, but one of the clearest, most concise is right here in Acts chapter 17. And again, here we find Luke's record of Paul's famous sermon 
on what was known as Mars Hill in the city of Athens. Let me just give you a quick background leading up to our text. It was Paul's custom on his missionary journeys to show up in a city and go to the synagogue and reason from the scriptures with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. Notice at the beginning of this chapter, chapter 17, verse 2, and it says, according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures. At this point, he was in the city of Thessalonica, and uh, he immediately met with great opposition and was forced to leave prematurely, and he went on to Berea, and he was enjoying a successful ministry there until the mob that had run him out of Thessalonica showed up in Berea. Verse 13, but when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And so Paul was quickly whisked away by his companions and co-laborers to the safety of Athens where he was to wait for his co-workers, Timothy and Silas, verse 14, then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea and Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. So there was Paul in Athens. He was supposed to be staying in the safe house, as it were, lying low, playing it cool. But if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, there's no way he was going to stay locked up inside some house and fearing for his life. Notice verse 16, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So Paul had some time to kill here and he went sightseeing. Athens was a magnificent city. It was the cultural and architectural and philosophical hub of the world at the time. It was the home of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and the headquarters of Greek mythology. I mean, talk about a tourist trap. But Paul didn't see Athens through the eyes of, of a sightseer. He saw it through the eyes of a soul winner. And as he, as he walked through the city, his heart not only grieved, but it became infuriated by all the idols. Historians joke that in Athens it was easier to find a god than a man. There were some estimated 30,000 statues and, and idols in that city. And so his heart swelled with righteous indignation until it became a burning fire that he couldn't contain. And he went right back to doing what he did best, verse 17, so he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. So much for lying low, right? But notice he interacted with two specific groups of people, verse 18, and also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. The Epicureans believed that God was not interested in man. 
um, that he was, if he was, if he was, if he existed, he was distant. And so life was all about pleasure. Their motto was, hey, let's just all enjoy life. Their philosophy was, if it feels good, do it. Eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we die. The Stoics, on the other hand, believed that God was in everything and was everywhere. He was really the soul of the world. And, of course, they were pantheists. And life, to them, was to be lived without any emotion. They were to exercise personal discipline and self-control and not allow uh, themselves to be moved by inner feelings and outward circumstances. Uh, their motto was endure life. They were the grin and bear it crowd. But the most important thing about these two groups is while they believed in immortality, that you would live someplace forever, resurrection from the dead was a foreign concept to them. Because to a Greek, the body was a, a, a prison. It was a bad thing. And then and the sooner you could leave your body, the happier you would be. And so why would anyone ever want to return to their old body? That made no sense to them. And so they said, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Literally, what would this seed picker have to say to us? The idea here is of a bird picking up seeds all over the place, and they accuse Paul of collecting scraps of ideas and teachings of others and sharing them as his own. And it seems strange to them, particularly the preaching of the resurrection of Jesus. That's what caught their attention. That was the real mind bender for them. And so notice verse 19, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. It, it, you may think that, well, they just said, hey, uh, we got some guys we'd love to hang out and we, you know, talk. And no, it was they grabbed a hold of him, like they grabbed him by the scruff of his neck and drug him off, whether he wanted to go or not. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, which, by the way, was this high, highly esteemed elite group of men who were responsible for supervising all the education in Athens and monitoring all the itinerant speakers who would come and go. And the picture that always comes into mind when I think of the Areopagus is, if you're a Star Wars fan, the Jedi Council. The guys that just kind of sat around on those big chairs, in, you know, in a circle, and they would bring somebody in, and they would stand in the midst, and they would kind of have to defend themselves or get counsel from the, the Jedi. So they said, may we know what this new teaching is which you're proclaiming, verse 20, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. And then Luke adds the comment here, now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. In other words, these guys would sit around. This is what they did for a living and talk and philosophize. And notice how Paul started off addressing them in verse 22. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. 
So he starts off by acknowledging the fact that they were extremely religious. So much so that uh, they even had an altar dedicated to an unknown God, just to make sure, just to make sure all their bases were covered. They didn't want to get to the end and meet up with some God that they had never worshipped. And so they were like, oh, you were that unknown God. We were worshipping you. Honestly, I don't know how they kept track of all of their gods and goddesses. If you've studied Greek mythology, right, in history or literature, I mean, where do you begin and where do you end with that? But I hope you see the contrast that's beginning to develop here between worshiping an unknown God and knowing the one and only true God. God is often referred to as the great unknown. Or what happens after we die is the great unknown. As if we can't know God, as if we can't know what's going to happen when we die. Well, guess what? We can know the great unknown. The problem was they were ignorant. Notice he says here, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. That word ignorance is where we get the word agnosticism or agnostic. And we understand that an agnostic is someone who doesn't necessarily deny the existence of God. That would be an atheist, but an agnostic says, well, you know, there may be a God, but if, if there is a God, we really can't know him. He really can't be known. And so with that, Paul essentially says, okay, boys, strap on your seatbelts. Welcome to God 101. And he goes on to explain two basic facts about God that we all need to know and understand and do in order to have a right view of God and to be in a right relationship with God. And we see in verses 24 through 29, God's character, who he is. And then in verses 30 through 34, we see God's command and what he requires. Let's look first of all at God's character, who he is. And I want you to see how Paul listed six attributes of God. First of all, he explained that God was the creator. Verse 24, the God who made the world and all things in it. Notice he said the God. In other words, he was addressing the pantheon of gods, the, all these many impersonal gods and god, goddesses in Greek mythology. No, no, there's only one and only true God. And it was that God, that one and only true God, who made the world. In other words, the world didn't evolve. It was created by God. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. In other words, God made the world out of nothing. Revelation 4.11, why will we worship God for all eternity? Worthy art thou, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. And so it 
still amazes me that the theory of evolution is held and taught by many as a scientific fact equal to the law of gravity. Which, by the way, we know that's true because you can observe that, you can repeat that, you can test that, but you can't do that with the theory of evolution. It, 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 in fact, it, it contradicts science. For example, the, the second law of thermodynamics, which says everything goes from a state of order to disorder. In other words, you put a, something in your backyard and leave it out there for, for a few years, uh, and, and it's exposed to all the elements. It's not going to get shinier. It's going to get, what? Rustier. And so the theory of evolution is, is as absurd as believing that if you put a pile of building supplies in the path of a tornado, it's going to assemble itself into a house. Wow, that was cool. That's amazing. It would be like believing an explosion in a clock factory could produce something as intricate as a Rolex watch. How much more absurd to say that our complex universe, your complex body, is the result of a big bang. So God is, number one, the creator. Secondly, Paul explained God as the ruler. Verse 24, since he is Lord of heaven and earth and does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands. Being the Lord, the fact that Paul called God Lord means that he is the one in charge. He's the one ultimately in authority. He's the rightful owner of everything that he has made. Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. And so, since he made everything, it stands to reason that he owns everything, and he has the right to demand absolute authority over every one of us. We have no right to live our lives independent from him. We must submit to his lordship and let him rule over us. And notice he says that this God, this ruling being, doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. And again, there was temples all around them as he was saying that. You can't can't contain an infinite God in a finite space. I mean, you can't put God in a box. God himself said this in Isaiah 66, 1, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me and where is a place that I may rest? Just a picture of the bigness of God, right? That he props up his feet, if you will, on planet earth as his footstool. Solomon did build a house for the Lord at the Lord's command. But even then, when he dedicated it, he got it. He understood. He said this in 1 Kings 8, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house which I've built. All that was for the Jews was a center point for their worship of the one true God. And so God is the creator. He is also the ruler. But then Paul also explained him as the sustainer. Verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. In other words, God doesn't depend on us for anything. Anything. 
However, we depend on him for everything. And it's absurd to think that we can give something to God as if he needed something from us. He is self-existent. He is self-sufficient. I've had the opportunity both here in the States and also overseas to visit Hindu temples and Buddhist temples. Some of you may have gone to them as well. And probably the saddest thing to me about it, the most shocking thing to me about it, is how they feel obligated to take care of their God. And so they have to feed their God. So they put out plates of food on a daily basis, feeding their God. And you don't have to go to overseas. You can just go down to the local Chinese restaurant and see that going on, right? That they're, they're taking care of their God. They're feeding their God. I'll never forget visiting a Hindu temple in Malibu, California, of all places, and the priest came in with jugs of milk and poured it all over the idol there that they were worshiping, and were washing it down, giving it a bath. Listen, if you have to give your God a bath, I don't think uh, he's the kind of God you want as your God. Psalm 50 Verse 10, for every beast of the forest is mine, God says, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. And Paul says he's the one that gives to all life and breath and all things. In other words, we don't give to God, he gives to us. He's the one who gave us life to begin with. He's the one who allowed you to get out of bed this morning. He's the reason why your heart is beating right now, why why your lungs are pumping right now. And he's the one who provides us food and clothes and cars and homes and kids and joy and laughter and every other good thing that we enjoy in life. It comes from God. 1 Timothy 6, 17, God richly supplies us all things to enjoy. James 1, 17, every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. So God is the creator. He's the ruler. He's the sustainer but he's also the controller. Notice verse 26. And God made from one man every nation.